Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving holiday. Had fun with your families. Maybe had some time to stop and count your blessings. Uh, focus your heart and mind on Jesus. And uh, I guess my prayer is that as, as we come out of Thanksgiving, that that, that, uh, that that counting of our blessings and that gratitude that we've experienced turns into generosity, uh, that we go into the Christmas season with a, with a spirit of generosity, knowing how much we've been given. Um, I know several are out of town this morning and still, still celebrating. We miss them, but glad everybody's here this morning. Why don't we pray uh, before we dive into this morning's scripture? Well, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all our many blessings, God, that you've given to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your son, that you loved us so much, that you love this world so much, that you would give your only son for us, Father. We thank you that through him you've given us every spiritual blessing. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit so that you are with us, that you've sent us and you've invited us in on the work that you're doing and you're making all things new and we just thank you that you've rescued us, God, that you made a way that we could know you, that we could be sons and daughters of God, that we could be your children and you're our Father. Father, I pray this morning that you you stir our affections, that you... We stir our hearts up to know and understand this great love that you have for us, that through this season we look to Jesus and that Jesus is center for us and that we, we, uh, we remember the gospel and we remember the first coming of our Christ and our Lord and our Savior. And Lord, that through that we are sent to others. I pray this morning that you would say what you want said to each one of us, that your Holy Spirit would have our ears hear what you want each one of us to hear and that you would just be our focus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today's the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, we, lit, we just lit a candle for hope. And we're going to talk a little bit about hope this morning, if I can find my place. But as we light the candle of hope on our wreath this morning, this is what I want us to think about. Where, it is, where is it that you actually find your hope? Where is it that you actually put your hope? Where is it that I put my hope? And what does that mean anyways to put our hope in something or in somebody? What is hope? Hope is the expectation that our desires will be fulfilled. Right? Hope is the expectation that our desire will be fulfilled. Hope's the reason we press on until tomorrow. It's the reason we get out of bed in the morning. So this morning, I just want you to consider with me as we go through this, these scriptures, I want you to consider where your hope is found, truly. What do you trust is going to happen in your life that makes you roll out of bed in the morning? What's keeping you going? I think we have a lot of options that we could put our hope in. Like, we could put our hope in our family, in our kids, our money, our job, our traveling, our country, what, leg- what legacy we're going to leave. And sometimes hope can just be like getting to the weekend, right? Like hope can be just that the weekend's coming and that's enough to get us through the week. For me, I've been taking classes online for a while and I'm really burned out at the moment, to be honest. And I got some hope because the semester's almost over and I'm going to be able to decompress over the holidays. And I can see it coming. There's like a light at the end of the tunnel and that's just a little bit of hope, right? But here's the thing. I think, honestly, we tend to set our hopes 
too low. We tend to set our hopes on things that are pretty low in two different ways. One is we either set our hopes on things like getting to the weekend or to the end of the semester or maxing out our retirement count or getting a job promotion, things like that. Or we think we're setting our hopes high because we're idealists or dreamers and, uh, and we found something that we're willing to risk everything for, some good cause that we've deemed worthy. But I would submit that that's probably still too low. And then actually some people are maybe like me where you kind of do both. Right? You have some, some low hopes, you have some, high, some high hopes that you think are high, and then you just stay confused all the time. That's me. Uh, but whatever the case, we tend to set our hopes on what we think we, we can handle on our own. We tend to set our hopes on what we think we can handle on our own. That's why they're too low. So even the dreamer, even the idealist, the, the big visionary, thinks that they can fulfill their desires and their hopes alone, right? They still think that it's, it's something that they can make happen. I'm going to give you an example from my own life, and it's kind of a hard thing to talk about because it was a very hard season. But I'll let you in a little bit on, on the life of the Richies. Uh, when we were in our early 20s, we got married when we were young. I was 21 years old. Um, anyways, when we were in our early 20s, we were doing all right for ourselves. I was involved in some ministry stuff. I wanted to do ministry. I liked doing ministry. I, I loved God. Uh, but I also had some, you know, identity issues and uh, some, some value issues, some worth issues, and, uh, and I enjoyed doing, I have like an entrepreneurial dreamer type sense to me, right? So anyways, we decided that we were going to move downtown. We loved downtown and we wanted to see it, you know, uh, come alive again. So we wanted to move downtown and we wanted to start a church downtown, right? We had decided that if we came downtown and we started a church, unlike all these churches down here that weren't doing it right, then we could probably do a lot better and we could reach everybody downtown. But I wasn't just happy enough to come here and start a church, my church, that was going to do it better than everybody else. What I really wanted to do and what we did was we decided to come downtown to buy a building and to start a business so that we could begin to build relationships in the community, or at least that's what I stamped it with. And then, uh, and then that would help make us more self-sufficient so I wouldn't have to get paid by a church, right? And then, anyways, the idea was that I would make money, lots of money, and then uh, I would also start a church, and it'd be, we would save downtown all by ourselves. Honestly. I mean, I couldn't see it then, but we had a plan. I stamped church on it. I was going to make money, and lots of it, and I was going to reach the city, and I was going to do it all by myself. Or at least we were going to do it all by ourselves, Claire and I. I couldn't see it then, but everything I was doing was to make myself the hero. I wanted to be the hero. I set my hopes really high, or what I thought was really high, because I felt that if I achieved them, then I'd have worth. I thought there would be some value that I'd get from that. And there's no way that in the moment I could have articulated any of this, and I didn't know what I was doing, obviously. But I was trying to build myself a great kingdom. And however much I wanted to stamp God's name on it to validate it, it wasn't his, it had nothing to do with him. And it really wasn't as great as I thought it was. This is what I want you to hear this morning. It's something that I've learned from that experience and from, just from experience. We're selling ourselves short 
if we find our hope in ourselves or in whatever kingdom we try to build for ourselves. We're selling ourselves short if we're trying to do, if we're putting our hope in ourselves or in whatever kingdom we would build. There's nothing there for you. It's not satisfying. I've had some success. I've had some monumental failures. Many of us probably have. And I've only found hope, peace, joy, and love, which we're going to go through on this wreath. I've only found those things at the, when the successes or the failures led me to Jesus Christ and led me to put my hope in Jesus. So before we even get started this morning, I just want you to hear that the news that you're selling yourself short if you are hoping in your, yourself and your own abilities, that's not bad news. And if it sounds like bad news, that's because your pride's in the way. And I want us to know that our pride is working against us. Right? Now we talk a lot about, around Redemption Church, we've been saying this a lot lately, we talk about how discipleship is learning to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. I hope you've heard us say that a lot, and I hope you're starting to memorize it. We talk a lot about how discipleship is learning to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And we keep urging everybody week in and week out, and we keep telling each other to submit all areas of life to him. Meaning, let Jesus change you in the places you really didn't ever think that Jesus wanted to go. That maybe it hasn't even occurred to you to submit your life in those areas. So like how you spend your money, how you save your money, how you give your money. Not just like, Jesus wants me to give offering, that's not the point. Like, Jesus wants to talk about how you spend your money, maybe where you spend your money, what kind of things you buy. Maybe he wants to say, say in that. <clears throat> Submitting all areas of life, like where you decide to live, what house you decide to buy, where you decide to rent, what school you decide to go to, these things. Jesus wants that stuff too. How you parent, how you love your spouse. But your pride will, and my pride will keep us from submitting anything to him. That's the point. We say submit everything to him, but I'm telling you, like, our pride will keep us from submitting anything to him. And here's, the, here's a big question for this morning. Who will hope in God while they still believe they have reason to hope in themselves? Who will put their hope in God if they still believe they have hope in themselves? If you still think that you can hope in yourself, if you still think you can do it on your own, if you still think you're the hero... You won't give over your finances to God. You won't give over your finances to God unless you believe he's your only hope financially. You won't let him speak into where you live unless you believe he's your only hope for a prosperous home. You won't let him teach you to be a parent to your kids unless you think that they actually need him more than anything you could possibly give your children. And you won't let him speak into how you should be a spouse, a husband, or a wife unless you believe that he's your only hope for true love. So this morning I'm praying that God will bring us to the end of ourselves and that we will meet him and realize how desperate we actually are for him so that we set our hopes on him alone. I'm hoping that as we go through this season, that's something we begin with. As we come to the end of ourselves so that we can begin to set our hopes and put our hopes in Jesus Christ alone. Now as we go through this uh, season of Advent, we'll be, talk, we'll, taking, uh, we'll be taking a look back over a lot of ground that we've already covered in the book of Matthew over the last year. And specifically, we'll be looking at how Matthew reveals Jesus to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah that are throughout the book of Matthew. So we're going to kind of walk our way back to the beginning of Matthew, and we're going to look at all the times that Isaiah is used in the book of Matthew and how Jesus actually fulfills these prophecies of, of Isaiah.
And this morning, we looked at one last week briefly, and this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus himself actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, which Aaron and Tiffany read this morning. But before we get moving, I want to talk briefly, briefly about why Matthew quotes Isaiah throughout his gospel. This is what scholars will call the fulfillment formula, right? And Matthew uses it throughout his book. And he doesn't only quote from Isaiah in this fulfillment formula. He quotes from other prophets as well and other Old Testament scriptures. And this is how it goes. Usually Matthew will, this is the, the fulfillment formula, right? Usually Matthew will sort of make a remark at the end of some passage or at the heart of a passage that'll say something along the lines of, all this took place that the scriptures or that Isaiah, or that some other prophet might be be fulfilled. And then he'll quote. And in a few instances, he's actually writing about how Jesus did the same thing. And that's what we're looking at this morning. This is an instant where Jesus actually uses fulfillment formula, that we'll just call it that, uh, and and, and says uh, that, that all of this took place, that Isaiah might be fulfilled. And we talked a little bit last week about why Jesus quoted Isaiah specifically and how it meant it was meant to strike a chord to his primarily, with his primarily uh, Jewish audience. And this is because, I'll just recap from last week, this is because the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah makes an honest appraisal of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. They continually made God secondary at best, right? We talked a little bit about that. They continually missed the heart of God's commandment to make them, that he was going to make them into a holy nation and a royal priesthood who would treasure the God who made them a people and spread his glory to the nations. That was the heart of his commandments. And they kept missing it over and over and over again. So God prophesied to the people through Isaiah of their coming discipline, of their exile, and their very near extinction. But also through Isaiah, he provides prophecies of hope for the people, that he will still keep his promises that he had made in the past, and that there will be a remnant. In Isaiah 6, we see that there will be a stump that will remain. And he'll once again save them and make them a people, a people who will reach the nation for the glory of God, the nations for the glory of God. So with all that in mind, it's kind of an aside, but it feeds in all this. With all that in mind, we're going to take a look at Matthew 13, uh, 10 through 17. Matthew 13, 10 through 17. And we were just here a couple weeks ago. This is a, a chapter on what we call the kingdom parables. It says this. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their, ears, with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Maybe you remember from just a few weeks ago in this 
Secrets of the Kingdom series, uh, when we talked about this passage and, uh, and how it's full of Jesus' teachings and our parables about the kingdom, we talked about how parables, the reason he taught in parables was because when he used the parables, it was meant to incite a response, right? So that this was a, this was a method to incite response. And then Jesus is here telling his disciples, though, he's saying that many in the crowd won't respond. They won't see and they won't hear what they can actually physically see and actually hear, right? And actually in, in verse 14, then he says, in their case, in the case of the crowd who doesn't see and doesn't hear, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says. And then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 and making this point. And if we actually look back at the passage, which we will in a little bit, if we actually look back at the passage in Isaiah, we'll see that Isaiah was sent also with a message to incite response from the people of his day. And God tells them that many of them won't respond, right? That their hearts are hardened and they won't see and they won't hear. Here's the thing, though, and this is, we're talking about how these passages in Matthew actually fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah. But here's the thing. That prophecy in Isaiah, wasn't it already fulfilled? And that Isaiah actually did go and preach to a people who didn't hear and didn't see and their hearts were hardened. And that actually, that happened. And then they actually did get disciplined and they went to exile and we know the rest of the story. Wasn't that already fulfilled? Um, Isaiah went with his message he preached to deaf ears and blind eyes and hardened hearts they didn't see so what does Jesus mean what does Jesus mean when he says that this prophecy is fulfilled in the crowd that he is speaking to I don't want to get bogged down in this I don't want to spend a lot of time in this but over the next few weeks we're going to need to know just a few things about how these prophecies are fulfilled in Matthew right Uh, I want what we want to know is that how are these things fulfilled? And there's basically three ways that it can be a fulfillment of these prophecies, right? Number one, it can be a direct fulfillment. So something is said to happen, is prophesied that it's going to happen, and then in the New Testament it actually happens. That's a direct fulfillment. That can be one way for it to be fulfilling. Another way is for it to be bringing something into full meaning, okay? So it's meant, uh, it, means something, it meant something to the original audience and Isaiah, uh, but, it had an, but it has an even greater meaning that was still to be realized. Does that make sense? And then the third way is that it can be meant to draw on the nation of Israel's history in order to show how Jesus is, uh, that Jesus' coming corresponds with their history and is the culmination of their story and their call. And that's the case here, that third option. As Michael Wilkins says, the crowd mirrors the people of Israel to whom the prophet Isaiah ministered. That's how it's a fulfillment. And we're going to get more into that. The crowd mirrors the people of Israel to whom the prophet Isaiah ministered. Now, some of you, upon first reading of this, may not have caught uh, what he was quoting here in Matthew 13, and I get that. And even seeing the quote, you may not, and, and knowing it was from Isaiah, you may not have realized where in Isaiah it was from. However, I just want you to imagine, if Jesus had said, in their case, the prophecy in Isaiah 6 is fulfilled, right? Some ears in here would have perked up, I think. Some minds would have been flooded with the imagery of this this passage we read this morning of of Isaiah's encounter with the Lord and of his commissioning with the Lord because it's a pretty well-known passage. I know not everybody knows it, but it's a pretty well-known passage amongst Christians. 
And our culture isn't nearly as biblically literate as the culture in which Jesus ministered. My point is, what's he doing? Wait, when he, when he quotes from Isaiah 6, what does it do? It would be like Jesus making this statement today to us, and instead of referencing Isaiah, what if he referenced Mayberry? Or the soup Nazi? Or Ross and Rachel taking a break? Or Luke's diner? Right? You got it? Right? You automatically, Mayberry, you're going to see Andy Griffith, the soup Nazi, you got Seinfeld, Ross and Rachel, you got Friends, Luke's Diner is the Gilmore Girls, which is so exciting, right? Not, not really, not to me. I mean, I'm glad, anyways. What I hope you experience is that you, 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 you all of a sudden have all these connections, right? It floods your head with all your memories from these things already. That's what happened when Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 here. It would have flooded the minds of the disciples with the whole episode of Isaiah 6, Right? We read it just this morning as we lit the candle, like I said. And in Isaiah 6, this is basically what happens. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But Isaiah encounters God, and he sees the Lord on his throne. He realizes his condition, like he sees God on his throne. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all of a sudden, he can see himself as he really is. And he's very unclean, and he says, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He realizes his condition, and he's brought very low. But God restores him, God lifts him up, God redeems him, he atones for his guilt. And then God sends Isaiah to go preach a message to Israel. A message that God says they won't hear and they won't understand. Because their hearts are hardened and their ears can't hear and their eyes can't see it. And when Isaiah asks how long he's supposed to do this, we kind of get this glimpse of Isaiah's unpopular message of discipline, of exile, of destruction. But at the end, there's a glimmer of hope that a stump will remain with some life in it. Which many at this point had their own ideas about what that meant, right? Many in the crowd would have had their own ideas of what that meant, what it was going to look like for this remnant, what this life was going to look like, this kingdom that was coming. They had their own ideas. And they had their hopes and their own ideas. But with all that in mind, Let's remember that Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6 to strike a chord, to get to the heart of something. He quotes Isaiah 6 because it was a pivotal moment for Isaiah. It's a pivotal moment in the story of Israel, just as this moment with the crowd was a pivotal moment. So how then does this picture in Isaiah 6 reflect what's happening in Isaiah 13? The kingdom parables of Matthew 13 are meant to incite response, like I said. The idea is that those who would hear it, the crowd who would hear it, would believe that any hopes that they had of what the kingdom was going to look like, any hopes that they had of a warrior king who would make Israel great and spread uh, the glory of God by conquering nations, conquering Rome, conquering the barbaric nations that Rome was conquering at the time, and that's how they would spread the glory of God to the nations. These are the things that were conjured up in, in many minds. The idea is that they would hear these kingdom parables and say, whoa, the idea that I have doesn't actually line up. And it's actually not as good. It's not as great. The idea is that if they heard the parables and they heard what the kingdom was really like, they might come to the end of their own ideas and begin to put their hopes in the ideas and in the way of Jesus, right? If they could hear, they would realize that their hopes weren't high enough, that they were missing the mark. And if they were, would turn, if they could hear, they would turn and follow Jesus and they would put their hopes in him. But that's not what happens for many. Mirroring, mirroring the people of Isaiah's time 
many would not hear or see, even though they can actually physically see and hear Jesus. They can actually physically see the king who was prophesied. They can actually hear him speak. And they won't, they'll miss it. They'll continue in their pride to rest their hopes ultimately in themselves and the ideas of a great kingdom that they have. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 at this moment, he's getting to the heart of something then as he shows how the crowd mirrors the people of Isaiah's time. As he fulfills the scripture of Isaiah, when he says it's fulfilled, he's showing how they mirror the people of Isaiah, of Isaiah's time. And he gets to the heart of something. Why is it the case for both the people of Isaiah's time and the people in the crowd? Why is it the case that they don't hear? Why don't they see? Why don't they respond? I think we've got to remember that in Isaiah 6, I mean, Isaiah didn't come to the end of himself and set his hopes in the Lord apart from God revealing himself like on his throne with angels, right? And, and, and Isaiah didn't get it. Isaiah didn't come to the end of himself and put his hopes in the Lord. He saw the Lord on his throne and only then did Isaiah come to the end of himself realizing how desperate he was, how unclean he was, how unclean everybody around him was and that he was a part of that, that they had become corrupt together. Only then does he see how great God actually is. John Oswald says this, and I really like it. As long as we think there's some hope of a human solution to our problems, there's little chance of our genuinely seeking God. Right? As long as we think there's some hope of a human solution to our problems, there's little chance of our genuinely seeking God. It took Isaiah having to see God on his throne to get some perspective on what he was really like and come to the end of himself. Without that, who comes? Who will ever hope in God? while they still believe they have reason to hope in themselves. And I think maybe a better way of putting it is who will hope in God who doesn't see how desperate they actually are for him? Who put their hope in God who doesn't see how desperate they truly are? Isaiah 6 is a pivotal moment in the life of Isaiah. Like I said, and and it's a pivotal moment in the history of of Israel. Matthew 13 is a pivotal moment for the crowds. Well, they put their hope in Jesus or will they walk away believing that they've got the better answer and that they've got the better ideas and they've got the better thing to put their hope in? What I want us to see today is it's a pivotal moment for us. We talked a little bit about this pivotal moment just a few weeks ago, but it's, it's a pivotal moment for us. Will we hear and see and respond to Jesus as we go through Advent especially? Like will we take the opportunity to like come to the end of ourselves and remember Jesus, remember who he really is, Will we turn and put our hopes in him instead of our little things? Or will we continue to rest our hopes ultimately in ourselves, in our ideas of what a kingdom, of what a great kingdom we can build for ourselves? The prayer is that we come to the end of ourselves, that we find that he's greater than we are, and that his kingdom that he's talking about, that he's introduced is greater than ours, and it's better than anything we could build, and it's better than what we think we've got going. Isaiah was sent with a message of impending discipline for the nation of Israel. To a generation of hardened hearts, he goes with a message that they will be brought very low. I don't know how else to say that. That they'll be ruined. Right? In this brief overview, 
that's in, uh, in chapter 6, we get a brief overview of the message that he's sent with. It's in uh, Isaiah 6, 10 through 13, if you want to turn there. And he says, and we see that his message is one that will harden hearts until, listen to this, cities will lie waste without inhabitant, houses will be without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord exiles the people into foreign lands. If that weren't enough, right? We're talking, the cities will be like waste, there will be no people in the houses, the land will be desolate, everybody will be exiled into foreign lands, they'll be under, everybody, in, under the rule of foreign leaders. And if that weren't bad enough, God adds, and though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. That's not good news. doesn't sound like good news. But then at the end of the message, there's this message of hope. Just at the end, there's this glimmer of hope in verse 13. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. Chapter ends. End of episode. Why would God be so destructive? That's the first question we have to ask. And just listen to this covenant he makes with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12-15. I think it helps answer. This is the covenant he makes with King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods, with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God covenants with David that he's going to make him a kingdom that will last forever, but he also covenants with him that that means he's going to be a father to his people. And that means that he'll discipline, when they're, discipline them when they're in the wrong to restore them. God disciplines Israel because he's a loving father. Maybe that's kind of hard to swallow because this is some serious punishment. But the alternative of what God does in, I, in Isaiah or prophesizing Isaiah, is to let them continue in their own hopes, in their pagan gods and in their own kingdoms that they're building, and to eventually completely forget God and cease to be a nation at all. They weren't as mighty as they actually thought they were. And they would eventually fall, and they wouldn't be a nation at all. So the alternative of God disciplining, not disciplining them is that they just cease to have a relationship with God and they cease to be a nation. The second question that we have to ask is, why then would God even leave a stump? Why would God even leave a remnant? Why would he leave a stump with a little life in it? Why would he leave a holy seed? If they're so bad, why not just do away with it and start over? Scrap it. Go with a different plan. It's because God made a promise, and God doesn't break promises. That's really good news for people who need to put their hope in somebody or something. God made a promise and he doesn't break his promises. He promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. He promised David that his throne would be established forever. And so here he promises a stump and a holy seed so that his promises can be fulfilled. And then just a couple chapters after this in Isaiah 11, he promises that a shoot will come from the stump, from the tree of Jesse, which is David's line. It's a promise that a king whose everlasting kingdom will come 
from that remnant of people, right? It's a promise that the kingdom that he promised that would be established forever, that the things he promised to do, the restoration that he promised to bring is still going to happen. Like that's still really good news. He's still going to keep his promises. And that means that even in his discipline, he's a loving God, that he's doing something to make that relationship right again. It's a promise of a coming savior of Jesus Christ. And it's what we're celebrating at this time of year, right? Is that something came out of that stump. The thing that was promised, the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to see that while Jesus has been talking, we're wrapping up here, right? So, so we, we have to see that while Jesus has been talking about the kingdom in parables in Matthew 13 to the crowds, and then he refers to Isaiah 6, and he does this mirror thing with it. He's referring to the kingdom promise of a stump as well, of a holy seed, of the shoot that springs from the stump, which he's the direct fulfillment of. He's the direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 11, that a a shoot will come from the stump. He's the direct fulfillment of that. And he says to his disciples in Matthew 13, but bless your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. To that I would just add, I, how much more are we blessed on this side of the cross of Christ? Prayers that we come to the end of ourselves so that we can see that his kingdom is here. We have a lot to celebrate and that the king has come and made a way for us to be citizens in his kingdom that the king has come, not the way we thought he should, not the way, not at the hopes we had of the kingdoms we'll build for ourselves, but the king has come, and he's come his way, and it's the best way, and it's the highest way. And we have a lot to celebrate, because not only has he come, and there's a better kingdom than ours, but he's made a way for us to be citizens of that kingdom. If you were here a few weeks ago for that Secrets of the Kingdom series, you may remember that Jesus later in this passage commissions the disciples as scribes of the kingdom to bring out their treasures, both new and old. You see, hope that's given spreads hope to others, right? Hope that's given spreads hope to others. As they begin to get the kingdom of God and they begin to get that their hope has to be placed in Jesus and in his kingdom, they have a new hope, a better hope, and then they're sent out to bring those treasures out for others. Hope that's given spreads hope to others. So as we find that Jesus is true and better, is the true and better hope for us, we will, like Isaiah and like the disciples, go and tell others, even to the end of ourselves. That's what hope does. It doesn't just get you up in the morning. It doesn't just keep you going. Real hope, better hope, takes you all the way to the end of yourself, even to the end of your life, because you know there's something better. You know that there's something promised that's sure in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. I said at the beginning that we talk a lot at Redemption Church about how discipleship is learning to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And we keep telling you, we keep telling each other to submit all areas of life to him. And we talk about our vision at Redemption Church. Our vision statement is of people leading people to Jesus who lead people to Jesus. To lead people to Jesus who lead people to Jesus. I think the warning, the warning this morning is that your pride and my pride will keep us from submitting anything to Jesus. And if we're not submitting anything to Jesus, 
As long as we cling to the, the kingdoms that we're building for ourselves, and as long as we put our hope in ourselves, then the only thing you're actually capable of is trying to lead people to yourself. So maybe you'll get somebody to put their hope in you. That's heavy. We don't really want that. It's not really good. There's nothing there for you. There's nothing satisfying in that. You don't want to be the hero. Who will hope in God while they still believe they have reason to hope in themselves? And the better question, like I said, is who hopes in God who doesn't see how desperate they truly are for him? This morning, I pray that God will bring us to the end of ourselves and that we'll see how much we desperately need him. So I want to I just encourage you as we go, uh, there's, some, there's some questions in the bulletin, but, but maybe just ask these questions even, just simple questions. Where are you finding your hope? What are you putting your hope in? What's getting you out of bed? What's making you go? Where are you putting your hope? What's making you press on until tomorrow? And then, with that in mind, how does it compare with the truth that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins? And that he rose to be your true king and that he sent you with the spirit to spread the message of hope as he's restoring all the broken things of this world and that he's coming again. How does where you put your hope, the things you put your hope in, how does it compare with the hope that Jesus offers? With the hope that he's already given us and that he came once and in the first advent, which we remember, how does it compare with the hope we have of the coming second advent? May you and I be relieved this season of carrying the hopes of the world on our shoulders as we place all our hope in Jesus Christ. And may we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. And may our hope spread hope to the hopeless who are all around us. May as we count our blessings, as we know whose we are, as we remember what kingdom we're a part of and the hope that we have, may it stir us to to have a heart of gratitude and generosity so that we take hope to the hopeless. And we actually open our mouths with the gift of Jesus Christ. We're going to move into a time of response. I would ask you to take a few moments maybe and begin to ask these questions of where do you put your hope and how does it compare with the hope that Jesus has given you? How does it compare with the hope that Jesus brought and has given? And we're going to, through this time of response, we'll, we'll, the band will come up and they'll sing and we'll continue to worship and uh, This is a time for you to reflect on that stuff. It's a a time to pray. It's a time to prayerfully consider those things. It's a time to stand and worship God because he's given us great things to worship him for. He's really, really good. Far beyond our comprehension, honestly. And then also, during this time, we'll come and we'll take communion. And as we take communion, we come down the middle aisle and you can go either way and you take it from those who are serving and you dip, you break the bread and you dip it in the wine of the juice representing his body and his blood and you remember and you're proclaiming and remembering with one another that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's our true hope, and that we've said every hope that we had in ourselves, all the kingdoms that we built for ourselves, they're nothing. They're nothing. There's nothing there for us. We're putting in Jesus because he is who he says he is. He's done what he said he would do, and he's the true and better king. So we say that to our, each other because we need to remember that. That's why we love, I love Christmas is because it actually begins to like stir our hearts because we're forgetful people. We need to be stirred up to remember these things. We remind each other of our Savior and then we proclaim it to one another so that we hear. So if you're a Christian, we just invite you to come do that whether you're a member here or not. If you're not a Christian, we just ask that you sit where you are because like I said, we're saying that we actually 
are Christians, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that he's our Lord and Savior, and we're followers of Christ. We don't want to leave you out. We don't want you to feel like an outcast. We want you to hear what we're saying in this action of taking communion. Jesus Christ is Lord, and there's hope for you. And also during this time, there's a giving basket in the back. It's a place where you can give your tithes and offerings. That's an act of worship. That's something we do weekly here, so you can give that as well. We'll move into a time of prayer. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your promises. I thank you that you are good and all-powerful and almighty and that you're a holy God who keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart them and that has been proven. You've been proven over and over and over again to us that you're good, that you can do anything you say you can do and that you're holy and that you love us. I pray, Father, that through the season starting today, we begin to, to intentionally seek you through prayer, that maybe we do some, you know, some devotional time to like really contemplate and take in and focus our attention on Christ. There's going to be a million things that will like try to distract us and try to take our attention away from you. I pray, Lord, that you just put it on our hearts to seek you wholeheartedly and be single-minded, focused on Jesus. Give us hope, give us peace, give us love, give us joy. That we would take it to the city around us, that we would take it to the lost around us, that we would be hope for the hopeless. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.